This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. We've all heard the terms big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. They are supposedly at the heart of a fourth industrial revolution that, because of technology, is altering the way in which we live, work, and relate to one another. But how is this so-called era of datafication transforming what we mean by both comparative and education? Earlier this month, the post-foundational approaches to comparative and international education special interest group of the Comparative and International Education Society organized a webinar entitled The Datification of Comparative Education. The webinar brought together Nelly Piatova, Ezekiel Dixon-Roman, and Noah Sobi. I moderated the discussion, which focused on how data and algorithms are reshaping the ways of thinking, seeing, acting, and feeling in educational research, policy, and practice. In this special edition of Fresh Ed, I'm going to replay our conversation because I think there is a lot of critical work to be done on cybernetic systems in education. I'd just like to welcome Nelly Piatova, uh, Ezekiel Dixon-Roman, and Noah Sobi to this datification of education or of comparative education webinar. Uh, in many ways, this is a live Fresh Ed show. That's the other hat I wear outside of Waseda. Um, so just to kick things off right away, I just want to ask, uh, let's start with Nelly. How, how do you conceptualize algorithmic governance or the datification of governance, and why is this an important topic to study? Uh, thanks, Will. Uh, very happy to be here, and uh, the first time for me ever to do a webinar. Um, so uh, for me, datification is about um, translating a phenomena into quantitative formats, so it can be then entered and re-entered into different numerical formats and then interpretations can be made about the phenomena that has been quantified. It's also about using data and datification to redirect thinking and action of people just by the mere act of collecting data on one aspect and not the other. So maybe something, making something countable and something else kind of not countable, not important to be counted. Datification also increasingly happens in um, implicit ways. So actually, most of the time nowadays, we're not even realizing all the data that is collected on our, uh, on our activities, either as private citizens or professionals. And so it's also very much an implicit process that we need to, to understand also um, as something very much intangible. And why this is important, um, I think it's changing very much the very basis of um, society and education. So for instance, um, datification is very much reliant on uh, learning machines, machines that learn from data. And so we start thinking about things like who is human if machines can learn. And sometimes they claim to learn even better than humans. So what distinguishes a human from a machine? So these kind of philosophical questions become quite timely. And also data is a huge business. 
uh, data has been said to become the new oil. And in that sense, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a huge machine of value extraction. And it's, uh, it's a way also to redistribute income between people, between societies. So it, it, it is um, profoundly changing the basic conditions of life. And I think we need to understand how and what can be done about it. And Ezekiel, would, would you add anything to Nelly's conceptualization and uh, significance of this, of this topic? Yeah, so um, thank you, um, and good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Um, and uh, thank you all for organizing this, this webinar. It's, uh, it's an important and great topic. Um, so actually, I, I want to start with really thinking about the relationship of calculation and governmentality and the ways in which the very logic and rationality of calculation has long been the practices of governmentality. Um, we know that in Western Europe, um, the practices of bookkeeping for accounting was recognized and appropriated by the state as an effective practice of surveilling and managing wealth and populations. These logics of governmentality were um, informed by enlightenment ideas of reason, truth, and universal conceptions of being and subjectivity and even of the human to sort of give a head nod to, to some of the questions that Nelly was just raising, as well as theological moves. Um, quite interestingly, in, in the philosophy of science that postulated number and probability to be the logic and language of the natural world, hence making the natural world the, what they called the book of the universe. Um, this led to the later positivist development of the social sciences and the quantitative imperative. The same enlightenment ideas that led to the quantitative imperative for the social sciences is also what informed Interest, the interest in appropriation and practices for calculation and governmentality. This also later informed ideas of cybernetics um, as the science of communication and predictive control. Cybernetics also in, uh, cybernetics informed not just the development of the computer, AI, machine learning, but also systems of uh, system theories of governmentality or governance, I should say, policy and society. And so there's it's quite an interesting sort of um, uh, natural, if you will, um, um, uh, connection between um, algorithmic kind of logic of thinking or calculation and governance in and of itself. There's a long history to this already. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also sort of laying this historical context in order to suggest that I want to be careful about exceptionalizing the current moment in a way as in a way that it almost can suggest that there's something particular of an epiphenomena right now in this particular moment that in fact there actually has been a long history that has been moving toward this very this very moment that we're in the only major kind of difference that we might point to is the advancements of technologies and the powers of computation that has advanced these very possibilities of engaging in, in different systems of algorithmic governance um uh, last thing I'll say is um, I, I, I tend to think about algorithmic governance as cybernetic systems of communication and predictive control, um, particularly that have become part of the logic and rationality of governmentality, as I sort of laid out in a second ago. This topic, I would say, is deeply important. Um, I think there's an interesting way in which there's currently in public discourse and even scholarly discourse, there's this kind of this divided or, or, or even dualistic kind of discourse where there's a technological optimism that we get. And then we also get a sort of technological pessimism on the other hand. And I, and I think both of them are very dangerous. Um, if I 
if I were to lean on Paul Ricoeur um, here for a moment, I would say, you know, a hermeneutics of suspicion without empathy can be quite dangerous. Um, and, and so I, I do think we need to be um, critically uh, studying these socio-technical systems of, cy of cybernetic predictive control and communication, but at the same time, trying to make sense of them and trying to think of ways that we can enhance them for addressing issues of, of equity, inequality, power, and even um, any, any forms of uh, anti-colonialist kind of projects or imperialist kind of projects. So Noah, I'll just throw it over to you as well. I mean, by way of introduction, how do you conceptualize this algorithmic governance uh, and why is it important? Sure. Thanks, Will. And thanks, Chris and, and Ezekiel and Nelly for those. those. I mean, we got some great introductions there. Um, I think it is important to pull out some of the pieces here. And I completely agree with Ezekiel's point that um, we shouldn't uh, exceptionalize the present. We should see uh, sort of things that are happening uh, as part of some sort of longer term historical trajectories in governmentality and how governance works. Um, at the same time, I think it is worth um, pulling out some, some sort of stages, you know, um, and some differences. Because uh, I think there is a difference between uh, the datification of, of, uh, of education and also the algorithmic uh, governance of, of human beings. Um, and then there's also the, the question that's sort of in the title of the webinar, sort of the datification of comparative education, sort of as a separate idea than the datification of education. So I think we'll probably get to that. But just to focus on the first, you know, um, uh, so data, you know, I'm in Chicago, uh, in the United States, uh, you can tell a story about the rise of data in education. I think you can tell a similar story in the UK. You'd probably go back to the 1980s uh, and you'll talk about uh, sort of the requirements to collect and analyze information that are connected to a lot of accountability mandates. Uh, and for me, one of the best like illustrations of this is the whole uh, practice of data walls. So if you've got Google handy, uh, just Google that phrase data wall uh, and do an image search. And uh, what will probably come up are going to be pictures of teachers in front of um, boards that have multicolored tabs that uh, identify students and their learning uh, in relation to one another. Um, and you'll probably see representations of, of educators kind of analyzing, thinking about the positions. Um, and this, in fact, I mean, is, I'm not sure it's a hugely widespread practice, but it's just an interesting phenomenon in and of itself that, uh, at least in some areas of the, of the United States and perhaps in other parts of the world, there is this uh, idea that it is good practice um, for schools to set up these data walls so that teachers can monitor the learning and progress of their students. It's also a great example of the way that data is embodied, you know, uh, that data is in like enters into cultural practices, changes the work of teaching, the business of expertise, right? So to me, that's a really good exa example of one of the ways that um, some education has been datafied. And then, of course, you know, you can take this to like a school level and consider all the, the currents. I mean, it's almost like, uh, you know, school principals and district superintendents are, are sitting in front of like a, a commodities traders set of screens nowadays, you know, where they're weaving through all this data that, that comes in. Um, 
So I think that's that's taking that datification a further step. And then I think we should also, uh, and Nelly's comments got at this too, we should also talk about big data, you know, which is which is yet a different kind of data analysis that's relying on machines, um, that's taking the, the digitization of data a step further. Um, so that's, that's, those are the examples I would provide of the datification of education. And I think algorithm, algorithmic governance um, is tied into that, but into this, but it's something sort of distinctly different. Um, and I was trying to think of an example, and I could tell you, I could tell the story of getting um, on the TSA watch list um, because I think I was captured by an algorithm uh, where I made a, a ra I bought a round trip ticket um, and only used one way, and then for about a year afterwards, uh, got pretty uh, intense searches. But I think a a good example would be. Um, the notion of geofencing, right? There are um, some, uh, this is possible these days. Um, there are some American universities uh, that have an app, right? This is not an uncommon thing. Um, an app on students' phones that lets them check grades or whatever it lets them do. Um, if you have the, the alerts note activated and if you have the, the, the geographic reporting activated, um, there are universities that will geofence and send uh, messages to people's phones based on an algorithmic calculation. So for example, why might you want to do this? Well, if it's a Saturday night and a student is going to uh, fraternity row, right? You might want to send them a text about the university's bystander policy, right? Or the university's Good Samaritan policy. So I'm, I'm not sure that lots of universities are doing this, um, but I do know that it's being considered and talked about and perhaps even rolled out in a couple of places. But it's a perfect example of the use of algorithms to um, govern behavior um, because it's an analysis of past data. And humans are involved in creating these, right? Um, because they're creating this model that uh, looks at data to predict behavior, right? And then is intervening with um, some sort of nudge uh, that's meant to reshape behavior. So I, I think that that's, that's the key thing. And then, of course, like the algorithm is going to learn. It's going to expand. Uh, it's going to look at other geographic um, areas where maybe there are noise complaints. Um, but I think that's, I offer that as an example of like the way in which like algorithmic governance works um, in that it trolls previous information. It learns um, and then really what we're talking about are things that are attempting to shape and reshape be, uh, human behavior. So from the deeply philosoph uh, philosophical about what are humans or who are humans to the deeply material where, where data is governing our everyday behavior uh, and perhaps social relations. Um, so let's turn a little bit to the focus on education specifically. I mean, in, when we think about a lot of educational reform today, um, it's data or big data or AI or machine learning or 21st century skills that either explicitly or implicitly are invoked as, as some sort of necessary foundation for addressing social inequalities. So can you speak to, let's, let's start with Nelly, can you speak to how you understand the relationship of data and inequality? Um, yeah, so that's a very crucial question. As you said, the uh, datification processes are kind of rolled, rolled out and through with the rhetoric of curing 
inequality and um, I have to say that uh, from the research that I've done, for instance, um, in the context of Russia with my colleagues, uh, we can say that um, whatever data exists, and even when it is, um, for instance, data on uh, learning outcomes that can be analyzed in, uh, in ways kind of that count the context, the social economical factors for different schools, still data is not a panacea. So uh, political decisions need to be taken in order to um, address the um, issues of um, quality of education or provision of textbooks or good teachers. So in the context of Russia that I know um, a little bit better, we can say that data exists, but data is not necessarily acted upon in ways that would be curing um, different kinds of um, inequality in education. So um, teachers engage in a lot of reporting. Students are tested on different kinds of contents. Tests are invented for different ages. And still we can say that lots of data almost lies in the graveyards because still there is no political will to to make things change. So that's one of the kind of more like pessimistic views that I have about the, um, the ways how data is uh, not actually, it can reveal things, it can show some patterns, but unless it's acted upon, it's not going to secure better equality for different student populations. And Ezekiel, what what worries you about data and inequality or equality? Um, so there's a lot I can say on this, and I'll try to keep it short. Um, I'll just begin with saying that um, I actually think one of the questions or line of questions that we have to deal with a little bit more in depth and, 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 and yeah, is questions of the ethical questions of fairness and even questions of even what inequality is and the context of data science. And, and so I'll just take, and even, I'll let me throw in another one in here, justice, even what, how justice even gets deployed in this context as well. Um, you know, there, there are, uh, what is it, over like two dozen different perspectives on ethics. And so what ethical conception gets privileged when it comes to making uh, to to designing algorithmic systems for making particular kind of decisions um, is always going to be not just a question but actually an intention um, what communities are going to be interested in what and what ethical perspective or position and also what ethical decisions are going to be important in what context so whether we're talking about in the context of of college admissions um, in the context of classrooms for making decisions around uh, uh, assessment of grades or whatever, but also in the context of child welfare or predictive policing, um, where there are high stakes decisions that are being made on people's lives um, as, as we speak. Um, I, I, I also, so I, I think there's some serious questions that we, we, we need to deal with um, around, around the ethical fairness questions of even what justice is. Um, for me, I, I often... I tend to think about justice as an empty signifier and often that often becomes hegemonized by a particular 
um, dominant interest. Um, and, and similarly, that also have implications for inequality. Um, but it, it, I also want to say, I, 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 I want to be careful not to also fall into the trap of presuming data to be bad um, or, or even inherently non-humanistic. Um, data comes in all shapes, sizes, and forms. Um, as we are having this conversation, we are producing data in and of itself, and we each are processing and analyzing that data in, in our own way, from our own perspectives, from our own sort of interests, if you will. Um, and then making inferences off of it um, and, and finding ways of also responding and engaging. Um, D data and measurement from an anthropological philosophy perspective is part of our quotidian lives. So to almost miss that is almost to, is almost to make data something quite other than what it is part of the very process and even enterprise of even being human. Um, obviously, the neoliberal discourse that has undergirded um, the discourse on data-driven policy and practice makes particular assumptions about data as well as the social world. Through its gaze on outcomes, it privileges the ends as a structuring force for regulating inequality and inequities as well. Um, I, I want to be very intentional about emphasizing the fact that it's not just about inequality. I mean, you remember the discourse around education, around the achievement gap and educational inequity is often about this focus, this, the language of inequity or equity. But in fact, what really is the focus in, in actual policy practices and even research has been on inequality. There's been this conflation between inequality and equity. Um, and, and so uh, through its gaze on outcomes, it privileges the ends as a structuring force for regulating inequality and inequities while overlooking the means, right? So in fact, it becomes a conception of justice that is completely focused on assuming that the ends can address all issues of justice and inequality in society. And those ends tend to be market-based focused ends. Moreover, the modernist gaze on data tends to be toward homogenizing difference, producing colonialist narratives about statistical difference that positions one group over and against the other. Finally, data-driven um, not only assumes data to be self-evident, but also misses the fact that, the, that data and algorithmic acts have performative effects in, in shaping or reconfiguring the social world. So in all of this, I think it's, it's critically important that we take seriously and, and, and really, I, I think there needs to be a really a serious program of research nationally or internationally um, and some are beginning to have been moving in this direction, such as the FAT Star Conference Group, um, the Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Data Science Group that um, folk out of Cornell and other places have, have organized and have started a few years ago um, to really think about what is ethic, what does ethics mean in the context of data science? What is fairness in the context of data science? Um, how, do we, uh, how do we address issues of transparency? And is transparency enough? Um, particularly for addressing issues of, of equity, fairness, and justice. Um, I, I'll, I'll stop with that, but I, I, there's, there's a lot that can be said here. But I, I think that might be enough at least to stimulate some thought. So I'll move it over to Noah and, and kind of pick up on this, this issue of 
thinking through what is ethical, what is what are inequalities when we think about data. You know, is it is it data that is producing these inequalities, uh, or is it actually more of the neoliberal discourse, the modernist gaze that homogenizes differences? So, no. What are your thoughts based on what some of uh, Ezekiel and Nelly have previously said. Sure. Um, so, I mean, to try and bridge off that, I mean, clearly algorithmic governance like enforces codes of normalization. And I think Ezekiel just went into sort of a good uh, discussion of some of the dangers of that um, that we need to be attentive to. So the second thing I would say is, you know, also clearly, um, you know, data are socially produced. They're not sort of out there to be found, right? Uh, and because they're socially produced, they um, are laden with all the baggage that everything else that's socially produced is laden with. Okay. Um, I guess what I would add as a third point, and this is to me where like a whole set of ethical issues come in, um, is actually Orrit Halpern. So it, there was a piece that was suggested for reading um, alongside this. Uh, I found it a difficult piece, um, uh, I, and I was glad that I've actually read uh, the full book, Beautiful Data, um, which makes a really, I think, thoughtful argument about uh, where we've come such that knowledge and the production of knowledge has been recast as data analysis. So I would say the, the problem and what's sort of like the, the, the sticky part about datification is that it's not just about data, it's about what happens with data and what data does, right? And like we are, we, we are in a mode right now where like data analysis um, has become a knowledge generating practice. And we're in a moment where data analysis like is considered an ethical and truth producing practice, right? Um, so, you know, database decision making is good. Like we should do database decision making. That's the argument that's that's made out there. I think Ezekiel got into a lot of the ethical questions that come up. I mean, I absolutely agree um, uh, on a certain privileging of the ends. Um, but I would also add that you know uh, there's similarly like a um, like a technicization of the ends. You know where we don't actually like. Uh, or too rarely do we sit down and talk about what the end should be. Instead, data analysis is just simply like the application of, of technical procedures to a problem that's understood uh, as technical without any kind of, in many instances, like careful engagement with like, what should we be trying to do, right? And so that's what, that's what when data analysis basically colonizes knowledge, that's what gets moved off of the table, right? Are the kinds of conversations we're, we're, we're hoping to have here. So, no, I, I actually want to follow up with that. So data as colonizing knowledge, but one of the um, audience members from our conversation today has posted a question about, does data actually look different across cultures? Or is this a somehow, you know, colonizing effort that looks very similar? I think on one sense, yes, absolutely. Um, data looks different, different patterns of data analysis look different. Um, you know, if you think about accountability data, audit cultures look different in different places. Um, you know, at the same time, there certainly are, you know, um, like normalizing global institutions, actors, and networks that are homogenizing what it is that is acceptable data, right? Um, you know, you know, we see this in many communities around uh, 
uh, around the globe where parents and families and children have different views on what, you know, are the markers, the evidence, the indicators of successful schooling than teachers or policymakers or administrators do. Um, so, yeah, I would say I think unquestionably there's a huge variety in 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 sort of data in the world. Um, but I think connected with that or alongside that, there's there's also clear differences in which kinds of data um, are imbued with authority. Right. And certain kinds of data are imbued with more authority than others. So, you know, a good example would be like all the the um, the indicator data that comes out of international large-scale uh, assessments like PISA and so forth. I mean, that, that data is, uh, carries a lot of authority in the world. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, so that's the answer to that question. I'd be curious what my other, uh, other panelists think on that. Yeah, so Ezekiel, what, what do you think on that? I mean, do we see these big differences um, in data across cultures? And, and in a sense, is data actually some sort of lived social reality? Yes. Period. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I hate to be so blunt, um, but um, whether it's a measurement instrument, whether it's an algorithm, um, whether it's um, some kind of, um, you know, I'm just going to say for a broader, broader scope, anything that is designed to produce information, to produce data, um, there is a socio-political process that goes into it. There's a socio-cultural process that goes into it, and there are socio-cultural assumptions that are made about the very construct or things that are, or the object of measurement itself. Um, and as such, um, for me, I tend to think about measurement as a performative process. So uh, not in a modernist sense of trying to get at some kind of truth or singularity, but in fact, Measurement is engaging in performative acts that are enacting, forming, and shaping the subjects that they're, in fact, interacting with. And as such, the way in which an, in, an instrument of measurement or quantification is um, performatively enacting on one subject is not the way it's going to performatively act, enact on another subject. And it's, in fact, the very sociocultural and sociopolitical constitution and architecture of the instruments and tech, tech, I'll even say social technology of quantification that even produces that kind of variability. Um, what do we do with that though, right? So I think there's a, that's, a, that's a whole nother question, right? I'm, I'm on the one hand, the way we often would, would uh, sort of write that off, if you will, is to say that there's bias there is to, or critique it is to say that there's bias there, that there's measurement error there. And I think that's also a problematic move as well. In fact, bias and measurement error come out of a discourse of modernist epistemological truth, right? So modernist epistemology, it assumes singular truth. So measurement error then would assume that there is some kind of truth in that very construct that we're trying to get at around with that in accounting for that measurement error. Um, and bias also is situated in, a, in, the, in the same line of discourse. So I, I think we need to also do some work on rethinking what even measurement is doing to bodies, to humans, to, to uh, let me be careful, I don't want to say humans, to more than human ontologies. Um, because in fact, we're not just collecting data on humans, we're collecting data on even all the algorithms itself and all the, and all the entities itself, right? 
Um, and so I, I think we do need to tend with what, what in fact, particularly for those that are situated in whether it's postmodern thought, whether it's post-structuralism, post-colonial theory, new materialisms, post-humanism, whatever it might be, um, anything that's working against modernist epistemologies needs to tend with what is this thing that measurement is doing? Is it really biased or is it something else? How do we make sense of that and what do we do with it? Nellie, I actually want to ask you about how, you know, one of these ways that uh, the, the data can look different across cultures is its interaction with or construction of particular forms of citizenship and identity. So I know you do some work um, on, on those notions. So, you know, how are data redrawing the boundaries of citizenship? Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I have, well, this is a question that I would say need to be studied empirically because, again, I think in different contexts, the effects of datification on citizenship would be quite different. So, uh, for instance, in the context of, uh, of Russia, where um, kind of um, uh, nationalistic, patriotic uh, policies have been on the rise in the past um, 15 years, uh, datification has uh, one of the kind of manifestations of the importance of data in education policies has come with the idea of increased testing and examinations, compulsory examinations of students. And so recently, for instance, one of the discussions in politics has been about why not make the history test compulsory for school graduates. So you can say that through making history uh, as a test compulsory and at the same time in the context of this kind of political pressure to narrow down the interpretation of history, to narrow down the understanding of the role of citizens in a kind of um, neo-totalitarian society, datification actually becomes a means to construct a kind of one uh, rigid, controlled identity of, um, of the Russian nation. So, uh, and this, I think, speaks against uh, some of the uh, interpretations that datification is a process of breaking down collective identities because of the capacity of data to um, individualize, to uh, identify people in very kind of particular, very um, um, kind of uh, limited ways. So again, like in the context of Russia, I would say that how datification is recontextualized there, it is actually used by the government to uh, bring about, together with other policies, a more unified, a more, um, but also a more kind of limited and state-related identity of citizens. But at the same time, when we look at some other processes like the something that the press has been writing lately about the Chinese social credit system, where um, people, individual citizens, will be scored uh, through our different data traces that they leave um, either as um, purchase power or uh, criminal record or some other issues. So there, like the, the datification has a very embodied and a very individual effect. And I think 
it breaks collective identity of people in terms of imagining some kind of political action against the state because you are just a private citizen scored in a way that you don't understand and your neighbor is going to be scored in some other ways. So there, I think, again, datification can have a very, a very different effect on citizenship identity. And of course, we can also talk about datification from the perspective of citizen rights, responsibilities about privacy or in terms of collective action. And I think it's, it's a really huge topic all in all. And Noah, in your opinion, what is this relationship between data and identity? Um... Well, I think Nellie gave some great examples of how, you know, data and the sort of interpolation of people in terms of and in relation to the data that's collected about them and the way that's used. Um, I think she gave some excellent examples uh, that explain sort of the importance that this has for identity. I, maybe what I would say is uh, one of the things that I think we're seeing uh, is not just datification, um, but also the digitization of data. I think that's a really important, and this is like a bridge into big data. Um, you know, I think we're seeing the, the sort of the electronic collection and the assembly of different databases. Um, so certainly like in relation to, you know, a kind of assessment, I mean, we know that those produce identity possibilities and Nelly spun through that nicely. Um, but I think there's I think there's also some important considerations about sort of what happens when the normalizing forces that make up people um, start moving into this digital realm. To me that brings up this big issue of privacy. What data is being used? Uh, whose data is being used? Um, so Ezekiel, you know, where does privacy fit into this conversation about data and, and I guess, education more largely? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I want to begin by sort of almost, um, I, I want to add a couple things to some of Nelly's comments, actually, because I find the project fascinating and also connects questions around privacy as well. So there's fascinating work around biometrics. And particularly around in, in immigration um, and the use of biometrics, particularly not just for identification, but also for the, the surveilling of boundaries and, and geographic and international boundaries that in fact, I, could, I, I see as fascinatingly in, in, um, in interaction with the kind of work that you're, that you're doing, Nellie. And I'm, I'm, I would imagine you're probably, you're probably looking at, at, at this as well. Like for example, the use of facial recognition um, and even, even um, fingerprint and even retinal um, uh, scans as um, for, for ways of uh, not just datification, but for identification, identifying and surveilling what bodies are within, what bodies fall without, and even find ways of excluding, right? Um, this, this also has interesting questions actually to privacy. Um, and one, who has access to, to, to um, the forms of data that is being collected? Um, when do we even know when data is being collected on us? Um, when do we have control over when data is and is not being collected on us? Um, and even when it seemingly is given as a choice, for example, when we open up our new iPhone or Samsung, whatever it might be, we always um, sign off to some form of uh, agreement um, and terms that include your giving over of data. Um, 
And in fact, we, how many people actually read those terms is, is one question, a whole other question is even if one read it, who would understand it anyways? Um, uh, but then on top of that, there's a whole third layer, even, even for those that might understand it. From, uh, do we feel like we really have an option? So oftentimes it's either you, take, you accept this or you don't get to use the technology. And so often, so, and, and this is, a, I mean, this is not just a, this is a, this is a legal issue that needs to be taken up on, on legal grounds where companies should not have this, should not have that much power. To be able to to be able to say if you're not giving us your data, you can't use this technology. Um, you know, I think the boundaries of private and public have been reconfigured in our contemporary moment, and they're continuously being reconfigured. And so, what becomes understood and constituted as private for um, my son, who's five years old, is going to be completely different for what it is for for me or for um, any any anyone else from minor or, or any other generations. Um, the other piece too is that also is contingent um, um, contextual cultural context as well. You know, the, I, I think the only other thing I'll add to this is um, the discourses around transparency, which obviously is sort of the opposite discourse around privacy or in relation to privacy, I think is very limited and, and in some ways problematic. Um, on the one hand, there is a move um, in Europe and uh, toward trying to make more transparent, more transparency in policies and, and, um, and data governance, as well as um, last August, New York City also um, implemented a, a, pol a policy of legislation in order to create more transparency in, um, in data and, and algorithmic um, governance. But so what if, you, if you're able to see? So what if I have access to seeing that algorithm that's even producing my data. One, what am I going to do about it? Two, do I even know what the algorithm is doing that's producing that data? Three, does the data scientist that even wrote the algorithm even know what the, the algorithm is doing? There are truly black box algorithms where even when the algorithm is implemented, they don't actually know. The, the data scientists, the programmer themselves don't actually know what the algorithm is doing. And so the very notion of movement of transparency um, is it's, it's in an important direction, but it's limited. It does not get us really in the, in the important directions of, of equity, fairness, and justice that we really are trying to move toward and interested in. Um, I think I'll, there's a note that I have going, but I'll, I think I'm a, I'll, I'll stop on that. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I actually I want to shift the conversation slightly now to thinking about comparative education. And so, Noah, I'd like to ask you about, you know, does the does datafication of governance and everything we've been talking about today, you know, does that change how comparative education scholars conceptualize the idea of education? I think it changes our pro our work. Um, I just want to say one thing about privacy, which is uh, privacy is a it's a historical accomplishment. I mean, privacy, the fact that we're interested in privacy means we're attuned to a certain kind of subjectivity, right, that conceives of the possibility of having a public and a private self that are different from one another. All right. Um, and I think that's fascinatingly what's what's in the mix right now. And I think 
uh, Ezekiel's illustration of this is always changing. This is always historically changing, um, and for different for different generations. And and yeah, we should be concerned about it absolutely. But we should also sort of pause because we're the sig we are. We should pause and think about well, why is it that we're concerned about privacy in the first place? Um, okay, to your question. Um, uh, and I just say that because I found Nellie's and Ezekiel's answers really helpful. You know, Ezekiel ended by talking about algorithms that we don't really know how they work. Um, and I think that's kind of the danger that faces the field of comparative education right now. So I mentioned the digitization of data, right? Um, and uh, I think that's sort of most captured in the notion of big data, right? And I think uh, it's important to, to approach big data as more than large data sets, okay? When we talk about big data, we're talking about a set of analytic techniques um, that go beyond analytics. We're set, talking about a set of practices. Um, uh, I mean, big data analysis um, typically is about collecting large volumes, putting it all in a database, uh, and then you know, running correlations with no research questions, you know, like Ezekiel was saying, like you kind of don't, you're not even being driven by um, a, a hypothesis. You're just mining, you know, this new oil resource um, to see what kind of learning, what kind of ideas we can pull out of it. Uh, and I think, um, I mean, I think that's the, um, uh, I think that's the largest phenomenon or shift that that faces the field of comparative education that we're going to need to grapple with. Like, how do we how do we orient towards big data analysis? What's the place of it uh, in the field? Um, and then I think you know, uh, you know, as you know, this datification proceeds and um, school leaders start to develop uh, data plat data dashboards. And we and systems start to I think of schools as data platforms. I mean, I think it's it's important for us in the field to really think carefully about how we orient towards the data we use and which of these ideas we pull in, which we resist, which we reconfigure, and so forth. And Nelly, in your mind, what are some of the biggest impacts that data and datafication are having on or reconceptualizing the field of comparative education? Um, well, I'll, I'll just start by saying that uh, the whole, um, I, I think the whole idea of and kind of the practices of research also are changing. I would agree with Noah. And I would say that uh, for me, it's interesting how perhaps as researchers, we used to imagine us going in the field, generating our data, coming back to the office, analyzing and so on. And now because of datafication becoming now this um, intensified process that affects the whole society, we are data as well as researchers in the different processes professionally, you know, these dashboards are also, we can see them when we'll, when I go to, to see some websites of my Australian colleagues, you know, immediately I see their publication rates, their, um, uh, citation indexes, and I'm amazed, you know, because fortunately in Finland, uh, where I'm uh, permanently based, we don't yet have those systems. So we are data, and we are acted upon also as data. And I think this is a fascinating development. 
in what processes. So it also blurs to me the whole boundary between who is the researcher, who is the research, who is governed. And uh, I think we need to start thinking about how this, the blurriness of this whole situation and us also becoming data in different uh, processes, in different contexts, how that also has an effect on us and on our research and on our being also in our identity as, as researchers. And for comparative education, I think many of the questions that we were asking today about cultural sensitivity, about context, I think they arose because we are comparative education um, researchers having a conversation. So I would say, maybe I would answer this question from the perspective, what is it that we can do? How can our field uh, contribute to the understanding of datification? And I think it's precisely bringing in the uh, ideas of context, culture, how these processes affect different people, different geopolitical locations differently. Also the ideas of um, what Isikil was, was bringing into the conversation, the coloniality, coloniality of knowledge production that we have discussed in comparative education already for a long time. So how datification is a kind of new phase of maintaining this unequal practices of knowledge production. I want to sort of, to bring our conversation to a close, I want to think a little bit about the ethical use of data and what does datification mean for ethics? Uh, and particularly in the context of Reed Elsevier and Pearson's, these are big education companies collecting all sorts of data that people, students don't even really know that they're collecting and they're marketing it and creating economic value in ways that I think researchers are only beginning to sort of understand. Um, so Ezekiel, you know, how, how do we as researchers deal with the ethical issues that datification bring up? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So I'm, um, I'm actually going to try to make some connections to where, where Nelly actually left off, um, uh, particularly in the notion of uh, all of us being, even as researchers, data. Um, so I want to begin sort of by sort of introducing um, the Lucian notion of dividuation um, here, because um, what in fact uh, has been the move, particularly in datification um, and um, uh, using um, Noah's, Noah's language of the digitization of, of data is um, actually more uh, of the collecting of, of data and information that's beyond even the individual that goes down to literally the compartmentalizing of even the body itself. It becomes even greater and even more of a biopolitics that's at play that, that, that is collecting information um, on, not just on us, but about the very um, various parts uh, and composite and aspects of our very being. Um, everything down to not just biometrics, but even biological markers um, or biomarkers um, uh, to even the kind of uh, uh, algorithmic forms of, of sensitivity analysis, um, even sentiment analysis, um, whether it's in writing or even based on uh, the encoding of, of facial expressions and, um, and moods. And all that is, all this data, all of it, and it's all of its various forms is being used to inform 
policy and practice. And so we then have to raise the questions as we've been raising and engaging in this, in this conversation of what does this then mean for the social? What does this then mean for the kind of ethical implications that can unfold? What does this mean for the political and economic, right? Um, and we, I can almost choose any one example. I mean, one of the areas I'm doing work on now on is, is in predictive policing as well as in learning analytics. Um, and, and you see quite, although different contexts, you still see there are still similar issues that arise around the ways in which the algorithms and the, and let me say more broadly, the socio-technical systems that are being built around these algorithms, if you will, um, are being imbued with socio-political relations. And I'll, and I'll say a system of socio-political relations that are hierarchizing and differentiating bodies um, in, in, in ways that are rendering certain bodies as fully human and other bodies as non-human or even partially human. Also a head nod to the um, to Nelly's reference and, 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 and um, explicit um, sort of mention to colonialism and any kind of actually post-colonial kind of interventions that are being that are being um, deployed with algorithms. So then connecting this also to comparative education as well. So I, I'm not a comparative education scholar, I should say. Um, and I've always wrestled with this notion of comparative education. In fact, I, I tend to, um, even when thinking about comparative education, I tend to think about um, maybe one to take a transnational studies lens in order to even deconstruct the very boundaries that are often even thought of in comparative education, or maybe the essentialisms that are often even constructed in through comparative education. But what? But there's a way in which um, the datafication of societies, I want to say plural, I, I think there is, I would actually argue, there is increasingly more and more of a movement that is moving toward um, not just a sharing across states, across agencies, but increasingly it will become the sharing across national boundaries as, as a way of really trying to, and in fact, we're already seeing this. We see it in immigration policy. Um, you can't you go you go through certain certain borders certain certain um, immigration um, uh, uh, customs, and even though you're going through just um, uh, the U.S., it's, it's not necessarily the case that the U.S. only has U.S. data on it. They also have other countries' data on you as well, and so the 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 spilling over, if you will, the globalization of even datafication also is something that we need to also take um, think about what are the potential implications um, uh, for um, socially, ethically, and politically, but as, as well as thinking about this in the context of comparative education in the ways in which datafication in society is producing and reconfiguring a form, a form of biopolitics and controlling, managing, and uh, populations. Um, last thing I'll say is with regard to just quite directly questions around power and inequality inequality. Whenever we have any kind of system that is dominated by any particular perspective, that is an architecture that is informed by any perspective. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull from critical disability studies for the moment to, to even try to fully um, inform this and what, where I'm going. So one of the things I really appreciate that critical disability studies really pushes is the notion that the architectural design of space, of even material um, buildings and space itself or place is often informed by an ableist lens. 
And so, um, or even I might say an able-bodied or even um, lens, right? And so what that then does is what, it doesn't mean that those who don't, are not able-bodied are disabled, but in fact, it constructs, it really materially constructs those very bodies as disabled. Um, and in fact, if we were to flip it and suggest and, and, and actually think about what would it mean, what would it look like and what would it do if a material place was informed by an, a hearing or visually impaired or some form of impairment, what are the ways in which it would begin to construct other bodies as disabled, even those that have been constituted as, as able-bodied? Um, I think the same lens needs to be placed onto the context of algorithmic governance and data science and education, and really thinking about what is in fact, not the intentions, but what is the doing? What are the performative effects of such socio-technical systems on education and society? Uh, and with that, thank you. It sort of reminds me of what Haraway says, where, where we are all cyborgs, right? That, that we are not outside of, of data at all. So no, I wanna, I wanna actually ask you, you know, what are the big issues in, in ethics and data science and datafication that, that you are concerned with as a comparative education scholar? Um, well, I'll just be real quick. Um, you know, I'm concerned, uh, and Ezekiel's comment about kind of the, the move to societies, and the, I'm, I'm concerned about the construction of these, you know, these sort of global scopic systems, right, that are attempting to bring human activity in the domain of education, but in other domains too, right? Kind of within a single screen of vision for the purposes of intervention, extraction of value, and so forth, right? I'm very concerned about that's what Pearson's involved with. You know, that's what ministries of education, as they start to reconsider their school systems as portfolios, literally drawing from you know, kind of investment rhetoric or discourse. Um, so I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Um, uh, you know, I think we as researchers in the field of comparative education, you know, we have an opportunity, uh, maybe a responsibility just to sort of emphasize that that's not the only way to produce value, right? That there are other ways to produce valuable knowledge. Nelly laid out a nice kind of mandate for the field of comparative education. Here are things we do well. You know, we, we produce youth. I don't want to, I'll say valuable, okay? Uh, valuable knowledge about context, about culture, right? I mean, these are things that have value. They have a different kind of value than the value Pearson is after, right? Um, but as researchers, I think we can make a strong case that we're doing something that's important. And Nelly, what about what about you? What you know? How do ethics fit into to the work that that you are doing um, in terms of datification of, of education? Well, um, I think in, in relation to this, I was thinking about your question about um, what can we do, right, as researchers in what makes us different from all these huge producers of big data with our small data sets that become uh, too old uh, very soon. And I think the, the kind of conversation that we've been having today about the uh, the political, the ideological constructedness of data, how the production of data has lots of different layers, lots of different assemblages that contribute to what data is or how it is performed and how it performs also reality into being. I think 
this is precisely the processes that we need to pay attention to, to try to understand to the extent possible. Ezekiel was saying about the impossibility to understand algorithms that all the time learn from new and new pieces of data. So this is a challenging, challenging task. But I think understanding how data is produced is, is one of the tasks for comparative education, but also for educational research in general. Well, with that, our hour has come to a close. So Nelly Piatova and Ezekiel Dixon-Roman and Noah Sobe, thank you so much for joining this webinar on the datification of comparative education. Thank you all, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, see you. Nelly Piatova is a visiting scholar at the Center for Comparative and International Education at Humboldt University of Berlin. Ezekiel Dixon-Roman is an associate professor in the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. Noah Sobe is a professor of Cultural and Educational Policy Studies at Loyola University of Chicago. Today's episode of Fresh Ed was brought to you by the Post-Foundational Approaches to Comparative and International Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.